This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, we have such a great episode for you today. If you are an ACO trying to figure out, do I do MSSP enhanced? Do I go into the new direct contracting model? How do I make this decision? This is the episode for you. Today, we have Mr. Rick Goddard, a market strategy leader for Lumeris. Lumeris is a company that supports healthcare organizations like yours that are in this journey to manage value-based care risk. They have a comprehensive value-based toolkit, the experience, human capital, and the technology to really provide end-to-end support and partnership for their client organizations. Rick Goddard is the absolute expert on direct contracting and all of the new payment models coming out of CMMI and, of course, the MSSP. We had such a great episode, Daniel, I thought, and really trying to dive into what does this all mean and how do you make a decision? So excited to get this out there and and really support our ACLC members and other healthcare organizations that are trying to figure out what decision to make at this important time and value. You know, Eric, I think you're right. Our listeners are really going to value this conversation. I'm excited about this episode because it's an analysis of these two contracts. And it's this conversation that we have with Rick that highlights a brief that we wrote together with Lumeris, a deep dive analysis of the options between the two MSSP advanced risk options, as well as the DC options, the global and the professional options in DC. And this is one that I'll just say up front, you're going to want to listen to this more than once. You're going to want to reference the bookmarks that we have on the website. There's a lot of technical information, but it's really good, solid analysis. And I'm excited for our listeners to hear it. So with that, let's turn it over to Rick for our next episode of Race to Value. Rick, welcome to Race to Value. You're joining us today for a very important episode. Thanks for having me. ACOs are at this pivotal point in deciding how best to proceed in performance-based risk in the Medicare program. 
this is also going to be our first podcast episode where we've analyzed a specific payment model with a guest. Here today, we're talking about the direct contracting model and how it compares to the Medicare shared savings program. And recognizing that there's going to be sections of our conversation that are going to get into the details of the models, I wanted to first get into just getting to know you as a person. And I thought a great way to start our conversation would be to ask about your personal why. As I understand, you're a triathlete. Health is really important to you. And how did you get involved in healthcare? Is there a personal connection? And also, what is it about value-based care that is most exciting to you? First of all, Eric, Daniel, thanks for having me on. A pleasure. And honestly, you know, there's a lot of great people that you've interviewed this far, and I'm excited to be a part of this great alumnus base here. So for me, as a personal connection with healthcare, I think mental health is a key personal connection. Family and friends, provider colleagues, and even some of our close fellow healthcare administrator colleagues who we lost the last couple of years due to mental illness. It's been an increasingly focus of mine to support and destigmatize throughout the healthcare industry. And so with COVID-19 proliferating, there is, has been just a compounding issue amongst the pandemic via joblessness, social isolation, political turmoil, social and racial injustice, family member stress, you know, with the illness, death and dying. Very close to me right now is childcare needs and all the family dynamics to make sure you keep people safe. And then those with jobs, jobs, stress, and doing more with less. So all of that compounding in, in a very unique time, and I, and I hope this is the one period in our lives that, that we'll have to deal with this, but we look at our colleagues who are struggling with this and may not be at eye-to-eye view, but they need the support. So I found it important to work with mental health friends and colleagues to drive forward with the destigmatization of getting help when access is more important than ever. Even for me, I chose to channel my stress in triathlon training for the last 10 years. And as the standard oblivious male, I just assumed working out can solve all my stressors. And that is not true. And basic balance is needed to across all aspects of life. So even when I was training for the Ironman World Championship in Kona in 2019, I thought I had it all right. Great job, great work-life balance, great family life. My wife and I just had our first newborn the previous year, and I felt good spiritually too. But if you focus much of your energy into a couple aspects of your life, the other stuff thinking about how sometimes we can learn from that imbalance. And it gives you a good place to level set on how you can calibrate in the future. Therefore, I think about helping others think through their de-stressors and options for help to destigmatize mental support because everyone deals with it, but don't know where to start. So the National Alliance of Mental Health Illness is a great place to help those in need if folks are looking in for immediate guidance. So as for value-based care, we all see it as a large problem, like mental health, and some look at it as a task you can't surmount to address systematically. Some freeze, do nothing, and think it will pass with the next administration, while others will put a toe in the water and test it at 2% of their operating budget. So I guess what excites me is they're starting to get enough momentum in the environment that thaws some providers as it forces them into the game. To improve quality and lower cost is in entire healthcare continuum, but it also is allowing providers and consumers to thrive after several decades of testing value-based methods, well, in part or in whole, right, if you're taking partial risk or taking fully delegated risk, combined with market attention, growing competition, the massive amount of private and public money now flowing to this space, 
and the general frustration with the status quo, I think we're humming. I think you guys have highlighted that much in your podcast with previous guests. But much of which I was excited about to join Lamaris three years ago, as they've been around for a decade operating and, and ready for the critical mass point that I think we're at with the market. So I'm excited to be in this phase of my career where I can both lead and operate to execute on value-based care opportunity across the many unique markets that Lamaris operates and will operate. So with unique patient profiles needed to change how quality of care is delivered. Rick, thanks for sharing that. Uh, you know, I know our listeners appreciate the personal connection and and you and I have had this conversation before. The mental health challenge hits close to home for me as well. And so I appreciate you highlighting that and sharing your why. Let's dive into this conversation, this analysis today by looking at the advanced MSSP models and the new DC models by discussing the context around APM's accomplishments to date and what they include. So the MSSP program began in 2012 when there were only 220 ACOs. Today, there are over 500 ACOs providing care to 11 million plus beneficiaries across the United States. Thousands of hospitals and health centers have participated in the MSSP and almost half a million clinicians. That's a lot of reach and a lot of impact. And counting the recently released 2019 results, CMS has realized nearly $2 billion of net gain with the MSSP program over the course of its history. And importantly, more than half of that occurred in 2019 alone. The MSSP programs have continued to grow and evolve over the years and experiences with MSSP have really informed the development of CMS's latest model offering, direct contracting. And you recently wrote about the new model saying, DC improves upon MSSP by offering more operating levers to help providers successfully manage their population, such as beneficiary engagement incentives, benefit enhancements, and pass-through of benefits to preferred providers to create a virtual network. Can you help our listeners understand at a high level the importance of creating a model that offers these additional levers and and what changes in these models result from lessons learned by CMS in previous iterations? Yeah, absolutely. So my background, I was a consultant for several years at a company called the Camden Group, which was bought by GE, I think, in 2015. And so we supported several engagements on BPCI when it came out in 2012 and ACO implementations across the U.S. And many markets had several different experiences. But when I was offered the opportunity to lead Advocate Healthcare, Advocate Physician Partners, ACO programs and uh, across the commercial and Medicare populations, I got really deep into one single market and the nuances associated. So really, if you've seen one market, you've seen one market. I know as many of us have lived through many of the early Medicare demonstrations and then those that came along post the Accountable Care Act, we became students of the business opportunity the program methodologies, the downstream impacts to patients, the total organizational impact to the bottom line, provider behaviors, and all the administrative burden to launch ACOs in the early days, fun times. MSSP and Pioneer in 2011 and 2012, I mean, this was fairly simple. CMS managed all the reconciliation and the program design. ACOs just had to make sure that they were setting up the internal care model, setting up a compliant entity and the associated governance with the rules, the extended care network to manage the total cost of care to the best of your abilities, even though leakage was inevitable in an open access environment. And understood that their TIN, since MSSP was a TIN-based attribution program and how you sign them up, not how next-gen or direct contracting is at the NPI level, was in respect to their own performance in the base years. 
So beating yourself, right? And so given a majority of the early years included ACOs that only performed in track one, which was upside only, and those that are more recent to MSSP, this is pathways to success evolution to basic A and B. Yeah, you understand the history of it all, right? And so, I mean, it was a strange time in the first six years of MSSP. And we watched as our hospital-driven ACOs were biting tooth and nail with other leadership, such as, you know, CFOs on the business proposition and whether it was cannibalizing our Medicare revenue and managing to the utilization more effectively. The upside only opportunity didn't have the teeth where the program offered effective levers for us to succeed in managing the total cost of care. So what it came down to was managing to compliance, beneficiary complaints towards the data opt-out, delayed CCLF data is incongruent with the trend reports. I, I remember, you know, we were getting like data six months late. And so anybody that's managed HMOs or managed care contracts with claims connected to them, it's like when you're getting it a few days later, they're trying to make interventions versus six months later and seeing someone fully develop a chronic issue since that time, it's a big deal. It's different. And you can't make those interventions associated. And then in program requirements, then getting a black box financial reconciliation on how we earned shared savings, you know, or not. Back then, those that took downside risk at that time, God bless them. But for me personally, I didn't see the juice worth the squeeze with the care delivery controls at that time. Also with the ruling on not being able to go back in risk with your entity, if you went to a higher risk track, it didn't allow for much strategic thinking on how much your risk organization is willing to take with a relatively uncontrolled population. And thought many times we're fighting against moving up in the track because we're still doing quite well in track one up. And so just with extensions, you saw that there was opportunity to progress, but there just wasn't enough levers yet. There weren't enough managed care-like design to, to assist MSSPs to progress in risk. And so that's not all I've learned about it. Hundreds and thousands of comment letters to CMS and our own ACO learnings and operating it one myself, improving them to led to more ways to operate a managed care model on a, under a traditional Medicare chassis. With all I said, like kudos to CMI and CMS for listening and keeping focused on the, all the work across administrations. That's a big lift. So I think this is a good opportunity to share that you're doing good stuff. So as ACOs progressed up the ladder in risk and offered more carrots or benefits like rewards, CMS offered to entice ACO leadership and providers to accept more risk and drive the total cost of care down, right? So these inclusions in prior years referenced the SNF three-day rule, telehealth waivers, and ability, availability to work with a prospective attribution model. And you saw final rulemaking and new contract periods of tweaks also committed to the improved design. However, up until the next generation ACO, we were not, there were not options to participate at the NPI level of network inclusion. And so availability for captive payments to participating providers and beneficiary engagement centers up to a certain dollar amount to drive consumer engagement and the line physicians, like that, that was a good test. And so given there are no sticks, you know, we talked the carrot and stick, there are no sticks or denials or punishments in traditional Medicare because there's no behavioral disincentive to go out of network or stay coordinated within your ACO care network. ACOs has continuously had to innovate to drive in-network value and provide loyalty slash stickiness to drive care coordination across their network in managing this open access population. With us reaching direct contracting at this point in time, 
as its latest innovation in the Medicare ACO, they've modeled Medicare Advantage like levers. And it's, it's not a coincidence. You know, that there is a lot of learning that went into this that had proven to influence quality and cost-effective behaviors and to implement across the network to what you described as the virtual network to arrange those managed care controls that are desperately needed in a PPO-like environment. So managing that and actually having the ability to pass it along to your preferred providers who are not required to take 100% reduction in their fee-for-service schedule really starts to do something interesting with your whole continuum. So Rick, we're in this ACO landscape right now, and you have these groups moving into two-sided risk options already, like the MSSP, basic E, and enhanced models. And then to your point, CMMI is looking at okay, how do we leverage MA and think about creating a risk progression path that's going to be congruent with what provider groups are doing in that space? And the direct contracting model really seems to be it. With both professional and global options, it really provides the new opportunity with flexibilities that aren't in other CMMI models or available currently in the MSSP. Prospective participants really need to start thinking now. We're at this moment. Like today, you need to make a decision. How are you going to proceed in the 2022 performance year with both the MSSP and direct contracting application cycles quickly approaching? And after a COVID-caused moratorium on new entrants, CMS will soon reopen the MSSP application cycle for the 2022 performance year. And though the specific application window hasn't yet been announced, we're expecting that here shortly. Similarly, the application period for the direct contracting model in the second and final cohort, that hasn't been finalized, but we're anticipating it's going to open around March to May of this year, according to the last timeline that CMMI was discussing. So now is that time. ACOs and the industry and provider organizations out there looking to progress and risk, they have to evaluate their options and make those critical decisions. So to aid in that analysis and decision-making, we partnered together, the ACLC and Lumeris. We came up with this incredible intelligence brief. I'm so excited today to be able to discuss this brief with you on today's podcast. And there's seven key areas that we outlined in our intelligence and our research together. Let me just read through a couple of those. Participant eligibility, beneficiary attribution, financial benchmarking, quality performance, payment models, financial settlement, and then additional benefits. Rick, can you provide our listeners today maybe with just a brief explanation of all the major changes that are happening in these areas? What are the key elements from the brief that you would like to highlight for those evaluating their options currently? Yeah, definitely. And Eric, thanks for the opportunity. I think, you know, you're going to have to help me in case I uh, miss a few of these in terms of the list here. But I, I think if you think about participant eligibility, this is relative, you know, for MSP, relatively straightforward provider or health system driven ACOs were eligible in ACO, in those Medicare ACOs. With DC, you're allowed the entrance of new entrants and payer based conveners, with partnered with private equity backed physician aggregators, the inclusion of high needs organizations that manage, let's just say, SNP patients. Medicare Advantage or Medicaid managed care-like organizations. And so even if I reference GEO rather briefly, it's important I think we don't avoid that there's a whole another model that's going on right now in the geographic model that was released in December. 
they added a requirement of a covered entity requirement. So this is HIPAA designated payer providers. So providers that plan to join will have to put forth a minimum financial assurance via surety bond, line of credit, or escrow based on the model they choose to cover downside losses if they occur. And I think that's a, there's a fairly significant lift between those compared to MSSP. Another thing is just there's early term withholds against the benchmark to assure providers to proceed past the foreseeable performance year in direct contracting. I think this was an observance to the come and go in next gens after noticing their ACO is trending in the wrong direction and pulled out early. I realistically, performance won't be seen after the first year anyway. So folks should know by the time that they sign the agreement, if they were to join direct contracting, whether they're ready to take the risk. And I think I heard you said, you mentioned beneficiary attribution, Eric. I mean, claims-based attribution still exists as the core driver for attribution in populations. However, more prominent is the use of voluntary alignment in direct contracting and its influence over the prior years with increased competition in the market. Retrospective and prospective were also offered in MSSP, whereas DCs can choose between perspective which is kind of an annual understanding of what your beneficiary list is, and prospective plus alignment, which is a quarterly inclusion period for newly aligned, voluntary aligned patients. Just a nuance, I mean, all only participating providers continue to be the marker for eligibility for claims-based attribution. So that's really consistent with MSSP. The one that, that we've been highly anticipating since the beginning of the announced release in April 2019 is just how is this all going to work financially? The highly anticipated release of the financial benchmarking breakdown came out, and I think it was September 2020. And so they, they outlined a few key things that, that's important for us to understand as we make some decisions on if this is the right model for us. So, I mean, just to be very brief, three-year baselines exist for DC and MSSP as part of their claims-based component of the benchmark. However, direct contracting focuses heavily on 2017 through 2019 throughout the whole contract as the baseline period. So it's important to understand the performance of those baseline years to determine how much lift you would have if a majority of your population is being carried over from previous claims-based attribution ACOs. The second is regional benchmark. And MSSP is retrospective based on fee-for-service expenditures assigned by the county, whereas DC is prospectively determined for each PY from a direct contracting ratebook, which is modeled off the MA ratebook, which I think it provides a more predictable prospective spending target that capitalizes on this DC rate calculations. So I think if you read some of the other summaries, there has been some interesting commentary that this does favor the new entrants. All of their benchmark is based off a of regional because they're all net new voluntary line patients. Another component is risk adjustment. Modest risk score capped at three plus three percent over a five-year period in MSSP. Versus in direct contracting, you have CMS HCC perspective scoring, which is similar to how MA is evaluated, which is based on the diagnosis from the prior year and expenditures from the current year. But the key point of notice, while there's still a cap on risk adjustment expenditures annually, it's going to be evaluated on an annual rolling basis with its coding intensity factor, which if you compare it to MSSP across the entire agreement, that's a substantial improvement and perhaps initiative to introduce a risk adjustment program. Another last and probably most controversial is the inclusion of this discount. So there's no discount in MSSP or professional direct contracting, but for the global model, 
it's an escalating two to 5% over the contract period. And so that that's really taking up to that discount amount is where you start your first dollar in managing the risk of that global population. I know that I'm going fairly in depth and I know this is technical, but I'll, I'll do my best to really talk through things as they're as the biggest implications for you as you're making that decision, podcast listener. I, I think quality performance is just, is, is a huge thing to be paying attention to. We know in MSSP, there's several measures we have to pay attention to, inclusion of self-reported measures, but that comes as a trade-off with direct contracting because quality performance is tied to a 5% withhold compared to the benchmark to earn back that first dollar. And while albeit the quality burden is a lot lower compared, since there's no self-reported measures, I think that's a positive thing for reporting version-wise, but less measures means each individual measure is that much more important. So just an important consideration to make sure you have your quality in line and ready to manage a claims-based profile. The key thing, MSSP did not have payment mechanisms. It was a simple, your providers and downstream systems would bill Medicare as usual, and you get a reconciliation at the end of the year. Now you have the opportunity to produce downstream capitated payments to your providers. And it's, CMS has left it fairly flexible for how you would pay those downstream providers. And so developing that design for what you're intending that your provider makeup to be is a key por- a portion that we, we think about when we help our clients. And then the operational distribution of it, given TPAs and standard payers don't necessarily have this use case where they're managing post-adjudicated claims from CMS and then administering a payment downstream. And depending on how complex you get it, that's a, a pretty advanced operation to put forth. But we've been thinking about that for our own clients as we start to proceed. The other thing I've just to cover just before, just so I can kind of hand this back off, is just I think the additional benefits is, is huge. Cost sharing is the biggest call out for beneficiary engagement incentives. The ability that you can essentially provide co-insurance coverage to increase access in your beneficiary population to encourage people to come to the doctor more. I I think it's incredibly effective against the cost given these beneficiary incentives will be charged against your, you know, you have to manage through your own benchmark under budget. But getting the access into PCPs, the, the investment return is way surmounts the cost. And so I think about the type of things that can give access and also get, keep people healthy in these beneficiary engagement incentives. And they mimic, and it's not a coincidence, much of what's going on in Medicare Advantage. And these benefits are going to be market-specific and what appeals to the beneficiary in that region. But I, I strongly encourage you because these things are going to be, you can also market it to it in voluntary alignment. So this is, I think, a game changer, especially when selling over an MSSP to a beneficiary. So I think that covers some of the high-level grids, gentlemen. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's great. Super helpful to hear that. And I there's a couple of those that are really interesting to me, and I want to stay on this topic and go a little bit deeper into some of those. Specifically, you know, this, this increased emphasis on voluntary alignment is pretty significant. Uh, it's a big deal. And then you called out the regional versus claims-based benchmarking. I think that's worth diving into. And then I, I think organizations are going to want to also learn a little bit more about the risk adjustment differences and the increased capital requirements. So if you wouldn't mind just taking a couple minutes and tell us a little bit more in depth what those changes mean in those areas, I think our listeners would appreciate hearing that. Yeah, so start with voluntary alignment. 
So it's been around for several years under former Medicare ACO models, and it has been a loyalty option to encourage members that have had a standoff on the plurality of services to where this is between two ACOs, such as provider-led ACOs would be effective. But however, there's very little uptake and folks had other stuff to do. So now through direct contracting, voluntary alignment, and really now for all Medicare programs in a given market, given this is available for DC, voluntary alignment is crucial. I mean, first in direct contracting from an alignment perspective, it takes precedence over claims-based alignment. So think about that. You have been seeing a patient for years. The set of doctors come into town and begin talking to that patient. And then voluntary alignment occurs. And now that that patient gets the supplemental benefits associated with it, you know, you certainly could see your attribution dwindle right before your eyes. Second, direct contracting members can market their patient engagement incentives that their specific DC offers. Let's just say, you know, I'll give that, I'll take that example a little bit deeper. So let's say that beneficiary has a relatively loose relationship with their normal primary care physician, maybe a, you know, one to two year, two time a year visit. That beneficiary begins to see marketing in the community that can acquire benefits to participate with another doctor network near home. And they can get transportation to office visits, their co-insurance waived for all PCP visits, and receive a $75 gift card for completing their weight management program. So their current doctor who is participating in MSSP, albeit a loose relationship, can offer no additional rewards to maintain that patient other than the provider patient loyalty to rely on. So if that patient is cost sensitive, but also sick of paying premiums on their supplemental Part B insurance, they also may see the local DCE benefits to surpass the value for that cost of that self-insurance. So I expect that new entrants and progressive health system-based DCEs will be looking to grow membership and, and market share. And, and this is a great opportunity to do this, but also look at it as an opportunity to defend their membership. So, you know, just because you have that claims aligned patient today, it behooves you to still voluntary align them. So there's not the opportunity where others can trump your voluntary aligned beneficiary. So voluntary alignment also has implications on the benchmark. If they're a new patient, they get the regional alignment, which is mostly beneficial to the benchmark rather than using the claims-based benchmark. So there's some organic growth plus benchmark advantages, which is a win-win strategy to acquire new patients in voluntary alignment. And I want to reference GEO again. And lastly, in GEO markets, voluntary alignment is at the top of the attribution precedence list. Those GEO DCs that market well and align with strong preferred providers will have consumer engagement plus aligned incentives to drive comprehensive care throughout the DCE's continuum. So talking about risk adjustment is one of the other things I think you called out. So MSSP uses the CMS HCC risk adjustment model and will allow for modest risk or growth. So it's, as I mentioned, capped at a 3% increase over a five-year agreement period. So DC does a couple of things that are a little different. They use in CMS HCC prospective model. This is applicable for both standard and new entrant DCs as models. And the risk model is based on diagnoses from prior year and expenditures from the current year. And it's designed for MA and has been applied to numerous CMMI APMs. But there's this in the new entrance of this CMMI HCC concurrent model, which is kind of being a pilot for maybe future rollout, but it's used solely for the high needs population, direct contracting entities. 
risk model is based on diagnoses and expenditures from the current year. And it's designed for a direct contracting model intended to improve payment accuracy for a small populations of these high risk beneficiaries. I think it needs to take note that risk adjustment is subject to that 3% cap, but it's on an annual rolling basis with inclusive of normalization and their coding intensity factor. But it really, the juice is worth the squeeze to begin early if you don't already have a program in place to ensure patients are accurately documented and reflected of what their, what their current diagnoses are annually. And so making sure you have that, it's, it's really important. And under GEO, there's, there's no cap in coding intensity. However, there is a, be a budget neutral normalization back to a 1.0 risk score. So much like we've seen commercial exchanges operate, and these organizations have put the better risk adjustment programs in place with providers, we'll have the advantage in the market. So the, the third and final I think I'd want to cover, Daniel and Eric, is just the capital requirements. And this is just an observance. An MSSP financial assurance for DC basic and enhanced is 1% of the benchmark. And I think there's a 2% if, if it's the lesser with, if you're an ACO that's based on revenue. But in professional direct contracting, this is 2.5% of that benchmark in global. So they split it because they want to make sure that there's more assurance for those that are going to be paying back total care capitation versus primary care capitation. So in global, that's 3% of benchmark in PCC and 4% in TCC. So the cap requirements for geo deployment, if you caught that, is 10% of benchmark. So these are much heftier numbers and to get issuance of a surety bond, letter of credit, or put funds in escrow. And they, each of those have different balance sheet impacts and bank fees associated with issuing those instruments. But ensuring that you have enough capital reserved for repayment mechanism financial insurance is important. Just to put it in a scale of numbers, so for a 25,000 live professional DCE, and let's just pick a market, and it's like looking at Denver, your total annual benchmark is going to be roughly 230 million, just crunching some math that I pre-prepared, just so you don't think that I actually have a calculator in my head. At a 2.5% benchmark, you'll need roughly about 5.75 million in issuance. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have geos. At a 10% benchmark, let's just say you're one in four geos and there weren't any other professionals in the market, no MSSPs, and took an even split of the eligibles at, say, 50,000 lives, your premium would be roughly 460 million and need an assurance of 46 million to procure for CMS's requirements. So this is not insignificant, which is a major hint by CMS, is that they're looking for large players with a lot of access points. So one could say this is a fit for national payers, but... I know CMS is looking for a combination of providers and, and payers as a threshold to ensure folks are serious about the risk at hands. Well, Rick, you mentioned the importance of getting these large players in the direct contracting model with different access points, having clinical integration, large systems managing hundreds of thousands of lives potentially. And I think about how health systems are going to progress in this new risk model and position themselves competitively in their market. And I'm just thinking about all the conversations we have with health systems and the ACLC. We're hearing it. 
right now. They're feeling some pain right now because of this pandemic. I mean, over the last 10 months, providers on the health system side are having to expand capacity and redesign their staffing model, their workflows, adopt new virtual solutions. They're dealing with PPE shortages. Of course, the drops in revenue are just significant. And then they have a patient population that's plagued with all this misinformation about the virus and having to think about the vaccine rollout. I mean, these health systems don't have a lot of attention span right now to really focus on how they progress and risk and, you know, thinking about direct contracting. But there's definitely some health systems out there that would succeed in this model. And, and, I, and I think about how they can navigate this decision point at this moment, this critical moment, historical moment we have in time. So it seems like the business models and the strategies for these health systems that are going to retain or increase market share, they've never been more important. So I wanted to ask you, Rick, how do the MSSP and the direct contracting options impact the likelihood of losing or gaining market share for these health systems? How can they create or limit competition in the Medicare market? And how can these organizations respond and recover from the financial implications of the pandemic? And how should they be thinking about this movement towards, you know, longer term, creating more of an asset light business model and thinking about the shift to ambulatory care and leveraging innovation and technology in the right way? How does that fit into this important decision as they evaluate the direct contracting model? What are maybe some of the entrepreneurial things that they should be thinking about as they progress and risk within this new CMMI model? That's a great question, Eric. If you had asked me that question five years ago, I feel like it would have a bit more indifference to the impact MSSP was having on the Medicare market share and how providers reacted to it in the markets. You have to remember in 2015, we were still amidst the BPCI, the oncology care model launching, the ESRD thing that was starting, and getting to the next renewal cycle of tracks one through three in MSSP. Folks are still figuring that out. And it was a good retention strategy for CNs for like the, what have you done for me lately bonuses in a clinically integrated network. So like even in very competitive markets, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, the folks who probably felt the squeeze the most were the post-acute organizations that were oversaturated to begin with and focused on maximizing revenue on a day's basis and not used to being positioned against a post-acute network and see volume and share dwindle if they weren't high performers and through the STAR programs. And, and you know, not to mention that BPCI impact of diverting post-surgery episodes from sniff to home. I mean, that, that was the stuff that we got to see at that time. So enter the macro legislation in 2015, which formed the quality payment program where we see, I'm sure everybody familiar is with MIPS and advanced APMs at this time. I know we're wrought with acronyms in healthcare. So the, let me just say the merit-based incentive program and advanced alternative payment models. I know there are mixed feelings across my provider friends and fellow admins, but there was some purpose to it and added a layer of complexity to the strategy for how some of us make decisions on proceeding down the path to risk as an ACO. Some pretty good macro behavioral economics came into play when they said to the docs directly and say, hey, try your luck in MIPS against your quality performance on a bell curve or join an APM, which were bundles or ACO in that time and get group coverage on reporting, which was, that was the MIPS APM or even do an advanced APM and we'll give you 5%. So, I mean, that was an interesting time for strategy in the progressive organizations. When I was a part of with Advocate Physician Partners, retained our 5,000 doc network under a MIPS APM in our track one ACL. And then we charged toward advanced APM status for the Part B 5% bonus. 
in some markets, docs would jump ACO to ACO to join a practice due to the reporting burden that MIPS was occurring. And this shifted Medicare strategy and created a view into how competition could move in on attributions and impact market share. Now, the quality payment program combined with direct contracting and voluntary alignment in play, the thresholds for advanced APMs have increased, and we are getting past the point of non-participating providers just going along for the ride. DC rewards high performers by placing them in these high-performing direct contracting networks. And through a strong voluntary alignment strategy, inclusive of these national payer MA conveners and new entrants, can impact the Medicare dollar even further within a given network. I mean, this should not be a wake up one day and wonder where my Medicare referral downstream went from these incumbent providers. I mean, the writing is on the wall and it's seemingly very intentional. So I'm not sure how MSSPs can help recover from the financial implications during COVID and unless they're already part of an ACO that have forthcoming shared savings. However, I heard you talk to Dr. Gordon Chen and Dr. Kevin Spencer in previous episodes about how the capitated payment cash flow is available to direct contracting entity participants and preferred providers, if they're interested and the DC is enrolled it, provides the revenue float they needed when the volume contracts. Direct contracting payment mechanisms would be a major value add for practices looking for budget projection consistency, but also adds the benefit of why folks take cap in the first place. Get off the hamster wheel of 20 visits a day and spend more time with patients to manage their conditions. And coordinate them effectively throughout your care network to keep them healthy. And I heard you ask about how do we impact the ability to move to an asset like business model and leverage different models. Like I hear that question and I think, wow, that's something that I hope everybody's thinking about, but we can't all do this ourselves. We need to be thinking about like what we can leverage as not maybe a core asset or core skill set, and then perhaps grow them or just totally decide, hey, this is not something that I'm, I'm going to do, but I'm going to find the right partner. So like as any practice or health system leader is thinking about their own operating costs per unit of service and executing the day-to-day operations of the enterprise, thinking about the value-based care investments and ongoing review of an intervention ROI is a prudent thing to do. It's not old school. That should continue as a good business principle for years to come. But thinking about the right assets to lower your cost per unit of service and making the right informed decisions on intervention investments is paramount. What I usually say is in value-based care of mine, start with access. In a VBC business model, this usually begins and ends with, did you give your network enough access and engagement to ensure they got the resources when they needed it and understood why they needed it at that point? As we saw in mid-2020, the pandemic has become a catalyst for telehealth access growth. It will take time culturally to adapt to that fully and you know embrace the extra access points that brings a risk-bearing organization towards that. I mean, the great thing from an asset light perspective, there's not a ton of baggage in the value-based care space because it's only been tested and partially implemented in systems to where there would be a skill transfer than any job loss. So an example would be skill sets that would need to be integrating APIs into the core system of new intervention-based programs and technology. I mean, shout outs to my friends at CERN and our code product Maestro. With an, an integration of EMR agnostic inputs into Cerner's Healthy Intent, which is Cerner's course data ingestion and output engine. But I, I just find that there's going to be plenty of things for people to do. And because this is uh, only 10 years to 15 to 20 years in, depending on some organizations, there's plenty of work to do to go around. 
So another one of my hats off was, was Advocate as their innovation corporation into the VBC business model. And the key thing ACOs and risk-bearing organizations should focus on is starting with a really low-hanging fruit with like multiple comorbidity patient management. And there's applicability to the business model across MA, et cetera. But there are hundreds of apps out there to help with diabetics, but focusing on one area really well, such as screening patients for diabetic retinopathy, and then preparing a care plan ahead of time. That's a major intervention. And so finding other ways to do asset light activities where you can get people into the office on a periodic basis while monitoring their vitals ongoing will be advancing rapidly. We'll probably be talking about this two years from now. It's like, man, that was cool. Integrating those assets in a meaningful direction along with our provider colleagues and assuring that not making solutions that continue to provide alert fatigue to our provider colleagues is essential. So Rick, the major opportunity provided by the MSSP in comparison to DC is a greater sense of security. And not only is the degree of shared risk literally lower, as you've talked about, but the MSSP in another way is a safer bet because it's been tested for many years and by many previous participants. So some of the risks associated with selecting the MSSP over new DC options include, as you mentioned, leaving generated savings on the table, or uh, which result in business model and investment constraints caused by the fee-for-service-based chassis. Conversely, DC offers more incentives to both providers and beneficiaries to support care coordination and alignment with managed care-like benefit designed to drive down unnecessary medical costs. And similarly, there are general opportunities and risks associated with DC's innovative model policies. For example, DC has this added layer of financial risk linked with quality scores that would-be applicants should keep in mind, but it's also got this added bonus through the high performers pool, the HPP. And then, as you mentioned, there's this fact that it has the potential for full capitation, which is a significant benefit that you've just outlined. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about a little bit more about the risks and opportunities available in DC compared to MSSP and how can the DC models be leveraged to really advance care and, and how do they align for organizations considering Medicare Advantage? And finally, what are you hearing for providers who are not moving to DC? What's the deal breaker for them? Is it something that you're hearing universal, similar answers or are they individual reasons for each of them? Great question, Dago. I, you look at direct contracting from an opportunity standpoint. I'll, I'll hit up a few of the majors and then a few of the risks. So the ones that come to mind first is cash flow mechanisms. And as we have seen throughout the COVID situation, it has smoothed revenues for practices. But it also has had the opportunity to behavioral incentivize creatively downstream in partnership with our provider partners. So the increased capitalization invests in non-revenue generating services and improvements. So you're getting that cash flow as a lump sum that you are free to really work through and invest in different components of your ACO now to DCE. A direct contracting entity fosters creativity and customization. You know, we can think about a lot of different things that we want to do with our beneficiary engagement incentives or the additional tools that we're being offered to work with the DC as far as waivers. I think I like allowing providers to attract and compete for loyalty of beneficiaries. I mean, this is an opportunity to really show why you're, you're the best at what you do and you have great connection points, but that is going to halo effect across your populations. If it wasn't a reason to really promote some marketing and get this going, this is a great opportunity to do this with financial levers behind it. 
This incentivizes long-term investment. I mean, this won't be the first time a model like this occurs and we'll begin to see the phasing out of the old models because of the lack of benefit to the Medicare bottom line. Investing in new models and ones that could be successful that potentially scale nationally is pretty important. I think from Lamaris's standpoint, we think about this as a tune-up for a network for Medicare Advantage. Really, this is an opportunity for you to tune up your skill sets to take on partial or fully dedicated risk, or perhaps if you're, you're interested to move into the provider-sponsored healthcare plan space. So a lot to think about there. On the risk basis, with any new model, there's a lot of unknowns. And I think CMS has done a pretty good job, but like we think about the, the delays and rollouts and that it's unfortunate due to COVID of like the specific detail needed in order to proceed. And there's still stuff that's missing, but they're doing a good job communicating to us on when these things will be available. I think the discount methodology within global makes it more difficult to achieve savings. I mentioned that before. The quality withhold is a bit of a difference. And with the lesser measures to work really hard at, you're going to have to make sure you can really execute at it. The withdrawal penalty. So if you're not serious about this, you're really going to have to focus hard on, I'm going to make this at least a three-year commitment and make sure I invest appropriately so I win. Other than that, I really believe that the competition issue is going to be something that folks really focus on and find that they will oversee the risks associated by making the right investments accordingly. And so you asked how DC models can leverage to advance care as I wrote it down. Medicare programs, especially this one and direct contracting can be parlayed into multiple population types. So a lot of the investments you make in the infrastructure now can produce a halo effect that can be very powerful across your other populations. You talk about Medicare Advantage, and I'll just come back to that. There's a couple of things that I see as very well aligned, like the supplemental benefit alignment. You start tuning up these direct contracting entity benefits to where they allow you to do this under these waivers and provisions. You make it very much aligned with what you're planning to do in your MA strategy, right? Or with your preferred partner or your operating partner to de deliver MA downstream. But you could start to educate patients fairly easily and bring the cost of acquisition down of an MA patient if you're really starting very early with the agents. So it's a, it's a particularly interesting alignment strategy. Another one would be like tuning up skill sets and what we call mindshare at Lamaris of, of the providers on the participant network to have the critical scale to say, I'm going to change the way I run my practice to a value-based care model, as opposed to using this revenue model and fee-for-service is giving less rewards to continue doing it this way. So you're achieving that scale by more patients than your current patient base that are focused in value. And then I just say you're starting to build comfort with risk, comfort with capitation and downstream payment mechanisms and risk adjustment programs and functioning under a star quality program. Like a lot of that is just great tune-ups. And this is not unintentional. DC designers thought a lot about how this could look at the successes of MA and how do we align programs to give the beneficiary the best quality opportunity and be good stewards of the Medicare dollar. I think the last question you asked is, what are you hearing from providers who are not moving to DC? Like, what is the deal breaker for them? It's really market specific in a self-evaluation of their readiness. We help clients think through that as a self-evaluation is a reality. Well, given where their market is and they have their own assets to deploy, Certainly, we do not encourage those with limited downside risk planning to jump in head first, but we try to work with our operating partners as a long-term play to winning on their Medicare strategy. So this includes bringing along folks without the 
organization who are risk adverse to begin with. So we also help depending on the risk adverse situation on de-risking it due to our own customized governance approach. Also model specific, it is sometimes misinformation on how MSSP and DC benchmarks interact and can put them on the same access and plane. If you put them on the same access with the same benchmark rules, folks may defer to MSSP comfortably, but the benchmarks are very different to make a quick judgment on whether or not it's right for me as an organization and, war and this warrants investigation, especially if competitors are encroaching on your turf. So Rick, you mentioned the importance of having some prior success and like fully delegated Medicare Advantage risk models. And I'm thinking about that and some of the organizations that we've profiled on our podcast. You know, you referenced ChinMed and Dr. Spencer from Agilon Health. These are organizations that have specific competencies and infrastructure investments that are, are going to allow them and their clients to succeed in direct contracting. And you think about on the care delivery side, you have to have a wide array of different population health management capabilities. You also have to have a really good track record in risk adjustment and managing care gaps. And you really have a high touch model. You're thinking about boundary spanning interventions that are really targeted with specific patient segments. And then I think about all of the administrative services that you would have in like a fully delegated risk model, you know, credentialing and claims and capitation payments and UM and care management and having a, a good PR team. And, and, you know, think about the network management that goes into that and the subcontracting. I'm just thinking about if I'm an organization and I'm considering direct contracting, I need to know exactly what types of investments I need to make in my current infrastructure to be successful. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the process that an organization needs to have when deciding on a strategy moving forward and in this new model? I mean, what kind of data and analytics maybe would help them frame up this decision point and guide them in the evaluation? And then also, how should they be looking at a strategic partnerships? There's obviously a buyer build decision point. I mean, do they partner up with an organization that can provide them with economies of scale and already has kind of a turnkey uh, plug and play infrastructure? Or do they need to maybe be thinking about what they can do in house? And then also the other big thing is like, what do they do with their workforce? I mean, they, they've got to be able to, to pivot their organization. As I mentioned earlier, and on the care delivery side, really deliver care in a way that's going to be more accountable to outcomes. Here at the ACLC, really big on workforce development. I, I would also love to get your thoughts beyond the infrastructure. How do you approach as a provider organization reskilling and upskilling at this point to be successful in direct contracting? Yeah, Eric, I'm glad you asked that because workforce development and retention of any organization is, is just core to leadership, right? We, we think about how do we grow them and we think through what are the ways to get more folks interested in moving to this business model that I think you guys have spearheaded tremendously and scaled it across many different voiceovers in your podcast. Allow me to address the, the strategy in DC and what are the things that they're going to absolutely need. But I do want to get to that important workforce component because we really are going to see five years from now, really the investment here, it's the investment in human capital and making sure that we're investing in grad school, medical school, and thinking through how do we make this work. So, you know, just in terms of the direct contracting program, if you're really interested in your, you're thinking about the strategy, you're going to have to be thinking about a, some few, a few of these things. So like, 
ability to manage higher levels of risk, which is including up to 100%. You're going to have to have accurate performance forecasting, no doubt. You're going to have to work with some data that's not currently available to you that's distributed about your network two months before you start. You're going to have to start looking at 100% claims data, looking at your history, your base years, you're, you're looking where your regional benchmark can land, and begin preparing your board for these discussions. This is significant risk and the deadline timing is not on, on our side here. So ability to engage beneficiaries. Certainly you're gonna to have to build compliant marketing activities and figure out how you're going to increase outreach and interaction. Direct contracting offers so many opportunities to actively engage beneficiaries. So if you were thinking about developing a consumer engagement program and you have an investment in it, there's an opportunity to do dually. It's the great thing about when you get these regulatory changes and what, you saw, what we talked about earlier with telehealth, gives you a really good catalyst to start doing the stuff that you always intended to do. So I also think about experience with working with, if you have an existing provider network and developing that high-performing network. So again, I mentioned DC is an MPI-based program. You're gonna be having to walk away from a TIN-based program and MSSP if you choose to do it. And you could start segmenting out your TIN and thinking about new strategies of getting those MPIs into a high-performing network and a graduation strategy for those that talk about folks that haven't maybe contributed to the benchmark improvement or the quality effort. You know, this is going to really force the, the high performers the opportunity to shine while also pushing the network along. You're going to need to understand and effectively manage leakage. This continues to be an open access population, and it's no joke. There will still be plenty of snowbirds exiting your market. So you have to understand where the geographic and social movements of patients are across the network and understanding ahead of time how much is the, going to be the expected leakage and where are they going and what could they be doing as to running up the cost. So thinking about what are the appropriate ways to engage and include people in this virtual network I talked about. You're going to have to continue to expand and grow your payer contracting team. You're going to have to be focused on some of the negotiations. I mean, you could leverage your existing team, but you could also you know, outsource. I mean, to do that deployment of downstream negotiations with your participant providers for how you're intending to pay them in this capitated environment. I can't overstate the amount of work, at least putting in place the technology associated with that if you don't have the structure today. If you're a single employer TIN and you have your own downstream payment, that may be fairly easy. But if you're looking to deploy this across multiple independent TINs and MPIs that don't have the same revenue cycle and payment arrangements in place, and you want to pay them percentage of a cap agreement over a three-year look back, you're going to have to think through what are the systems to pay them downstream. I think that that really covers it outside of like Leveraging your existing payer assets, you know, they can develop MSO-like functions such as network management, compliance and audit, risk adjustment programs, et cetera. I mean, that, that's incredibly important. But I want to just point out, if you're a health system going into this, you have the stronger name recognition in the community that can help you with voluntary alignments. Don't let that go to waste. And if you are a risk-adverse organization, instituting reinsurance or stop loss with an informed perspective on cost and benefit is important. I mean, it's not, you know, you don't even have to be risk averse. It's a good due diligence effort to do this. And while CMS offers a premium opportunity against the benchmark to do reinsurance, there's other options out there commercially too.
I want to just quickly cut to like, what's the importance of competency development and how you build a workforce for this. There's plenty of things that I think from a competencies perspective, folks really have to dig into this. I talked about behavioral economics and I told you I wasn't good at micro and macroeconomics in school. My professors at University of Illinois would probably agree, but understanding what humans are motivated by with, be it intrinsic value, resources, recognition, and positioning those incentives to mutually drive towards a goal. I mean, this is stuff that is core to value-based care. I, and I also think a mutual appreciation of provider and payer-based strengths and skill sets. The worlds are blending and considering yourself a payer or a provider person is an old way of thinking. Learning about clinical situations, provider issues by a payer is just as important of a provider to learn about actuarial risk, understanding what a commercial employer is interested in, an MCALR and financial improvement. It will serve you better in negotiations, creating JVs, appreciating others' point of view, and leveraging innovations in both policy and settings. And please have an appreciation of policy. Be, being able to follow where Medicare and Medicaid is going as a majority of the provider payer mix will inform where commercial and the private market will move. It's shown itself time and again. So I appreciate how that, that's moving. It's just from an organization standpoint, just build the functions for risk. I mean, we should. Appreciate approaching build versus buy. Assess your own strengths. There's plenty of organizations that can help you from an operating standpoint, but the organization I joined, Lumeris, really focuses on managing the soup to nuts of, of executing on that. And then I just think it's important from an organizational cultural standpoint. Many of the existing jobs and roles should continue from a BBC model to a BBC model. I mean, the new additions are likely helpful to produce scale, such as automation or resulted in positive results from the community interventions or support for vulnerable populations. You should continue investing in things that work and try to make them better by educating your workforce and engaging everyone in the strategy. Whether they are only a small part of the operation, if they know where the organization is driving, they will influence others to go the extra mile in influencing outcomes. So educate a physician or they'll educate you reach out to coordinate an at-risk patient visit to the doctor's office. Like those extra efforts have big impact. And so I think about continuing this business model of an enterprise entity, in many cases, the health system, reform your operating OKRs, right? And goals to measure what matters and align value into the culture. You know, a good example is to stop thinking about revenue targets for hospital presidents as being the primary and only goal it looked to have leadership drive access or reduce unnecessary utilization. So as a percent in risk contracts surpass fee-for-service based contracts, I think these left pocket, right pocket, when we just talk about CANs coordinating through downstream provider systems, those discussions will begin to lessen. And I appreciate all, all the work you guys are doing. So thanks for uh, allowing me to talk through that. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today on the Race to Value. I know our listeners are going to appreciate your description and explanation and, and deep analysis of the comparison between the two models. For the final question as we go out today, Rick, how can our listeners find out more about Lumeris and the work you're doing to advance value? So they can certainly reach out to me, rgoddard at lumeris.com, but our whole company has a wealth of resources on its website at www.lumeris.com. And uh, we're also available to chat if you have any questions. Perfect. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, Eric and Daniel.